I think ultimately it's still, it's about people. It's not about space. We can't lose sight of that now or in the future. Yes, it's about technology. Yes, it's about the physical space. Yes, at some level, it's about the amenities that are offered and the benefits people have. But ultimately, people are people. People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among the industry leaders, and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. Few people have had an impact on the industry as deep and as broad as our next guest, Michael Casolo, who today serves as the Global Chief Revenue Officer for Unispace, has spent 25 years working in an industry that changed very little over that time. Today, however, it's an industry ripe for change and disruption, the good kind, and he's helping lead the change of that evolution. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. So, Michael, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, tell us, you know, how the you know, winding road of your career got you to Unispace and also a little bit about Unispace and kind of what role you're going to be taking there. Sure. I'm happy to. So my background, you know, out of college as an architect, licensed, uh, still am licensed to this day and worked um, in private practice for a few years and then merged my business into a startup real estate company okay. um, that was to really build their design and construction practice. So I did that for nearly 10 years and then moved on to um, when I went to work at the Staubach company as co-head of corporate services. Sure. Yep. And then we merged into JLL, where I had a few different roles, co-leading markets, corporate solutions, and then leading business development in the West for corporate solutions. And then um, before I left, I was chairing the global business development board for corporate solutions and then left to go to DTZ um, as they were getting ready to buy Cushman and Wakefield uh, to build out their global business development team for global occupier services and did that for um, about three years before going to the client side for a few years, running workplace design and construction for the world's largest hedge fund. Okay. And then from there was recruited over to Unispace to be their chief revenue officer. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So it sounds like you spent most of your career on kind of the brokerage side, even though your specific role was not a broker, but the companies you worked for essentially did a number of different services for their clients, whether they were landlords or end users, correct? Yeah, I was I was always on the occupier side of yeah. that business, and I wouldn't call it brokerage as much as we were sure. corporate services. So sure. it was selling the transaction management lease administration, facilities management, project management, et cetera. You know, all of the services that a, 
a corporate occupier portfolio would need to consume. Yeah. And I imagine over the years, that world has evolved quite a bit as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, the first company um, where I was for 10 years, we, uh, which was called USI, that later sold to Johnson Controls, and that was then in turn later sold to CBRE. USI, we were selling outsourcing services before the word outsourcing was really right. coined or right. certainly was being used. Yeah. This was in the mid-90s. And so, yeah, the evolution in the outsourcing services world uh, had been tremendous. And it was a lot of fun to be there in both startup companies, in merger and acquisition situations, and then, you know, working for two of the three of the kind of big three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also want to give an opportunity to say some nice things about Unispace as well. So let, let's let's focus on that too. Not just your past employers. Of course but, I want to do Yeah, that. yeah, of course. Right? So tell us about Unispace and kind of what does the company do? How big is it? You know, where do you guys play geographically and kind of, you know, where, where your sphere of influence is uh, within the organization? Sure. So let me first talk about the company before talking about my role. Unispace is a global um, design and construction company. I'm hesitant to use the phrase design build, but I think what captures our essence the best is our tagline, which is think, create, make. And it really does summarize who we are and what we do. We provide you know, a continuum of service from workplace strategy yep. to workplace design to the you know, execution of that design in terms of constructing the space. So we are not looking to do one or two of those things. Our value proposition is to deliver the entire continuum to a client. And that's really what drives the financial value, the speed to market value, and the consistency of execution, all of which are the kind of hallmarks of, of our value proposition. Yep. The company is a little over 10 years old, was founded um, in Sydney. We are global. We have about 45 studios around the globe. Technically, we're headquartered in Sydney, but I sit in greater New York um, as the global chief revenue officer. My boss, who is our global CEO, sits in Chicago. Our global CFO sits in Boston. So um, we are truly an international yeah. company. And then our global <laughs> head of our global head of uh, HR, which we call PNC, People and Culture, uh, is based in London. I so see. we have global leadership in all the major theaters. And we have about 500 plus people um, around the globe in uh, across all of our disciplines and support teams. Great, great. And your role, are you going to be focused just on North America? Are you going to be focused globally? No, my role is global. Um, so it's really driving sales strategy, sales process, yep. and kind of growth strategy for, for the company uh, at a global level. Excellent, excellent. So let's sort of jump into kind of some of the, you know, core work that, you know, you know, you guys do and obviously, you know, what's happened in the last, you know, 18 to, you know, 20 months or so has been terribly disruptive, right? What has that meant for you guys as an organization? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I also like the use of the word disruptive because, you know, for a long period there, the word disruptive was, you know, the connotation was actually quite positive. It was you know, it's a disruptive technology, yeah, right, it's a disruptive right. offering. It was an exciting, cutting edge, bleeding edge approach to things. And, you know, in the context that you just used it, nothing against how you used it, but it's looking <laughs> at disruptive in the negative. That's of right. Yeah. What, what has gone on in the last, you know, 18, 24 months under life with COVID. So, you know, I think the right answer for disruption is sort of in the middle because it's disrupting the disruptive 
the best way to say it. It's disrupting the disruptive progress that was made yeah. um, pre-COVID. You know, if you think about where, where things were going and if you look at the tech market, you look even at the financial services market, which was often looking to be more like a tech market in terms of the workplace, there were a lot of really exciting things happening. And then there was just, you know, the screeching halt. And that was a really interesting thing to reflect upon, you know, during COVID. Um, for me, it was the only time in my career I've been on the end user side was when this happened. And we had to deal with what do we do with our facilities and who has to be in the office and yeah. who yeah. can work remotely. And that was working for a company that had very, very high levels of discomfort with people not being in the office all the time. Yeah. So for them, it was a major transformation of philosophy. As a, in addition to the, the transition and transformation of the workplace itself. So it was interesting to be there then when none of us knew what to expect. None of us knew how long it was going to go on for, when people would come back, at what level they would come back, what it would take for them to be comfortable to come back, which really became a really a big piece of, of the whole you know, narrative. Um, it was what will it take for people you know, to be comfortable? comfortable enough to come back and you were talking about things at sort of the most micro level like will people ever be willing to get into an elevator again right, I mean, it, right. I mean, it's interesting looking back at it now but those were the questions we were we were being asked and we were answering you know when people talked about the six foot office you know where everyone everyone was six feet away i mean we looked at it at, at, at the hedge fund and said there's no way anyone would be comfortable with someone six feet away from them yeah you know that was just a complete misnomer that being six feet away, I mean, six feet away means if you reach your arm out and the person sitting next to you reaches yeah, their yeah, arm you can out, high five. <laughs> your hands have passed one another. <laughs> right. right. So, um, again, where people are today versus where people were six, 12 months ago are very different. So it's been interesting for us, which is a company that is solely focused on on workplace and every aspect of it. So from strategy through through construction. And it's been a lot of it's been interesting for us, quite frankly. Yeah. We yeah. have had. On the one hand, there was a lot more time to do the think part of our think, create, make, because people were really asking a lot of great questions that people didn't have the time to ask before. So a lot more time was being put into that. If you think about, if you've read about some of the work we've done in the concept of propeller and the propeller workplace, uh, yeah, and the tell playground us, tell us workplace, about that. Which, which came from that, those concepts were about what does the workplace need to be like? You know, as in, you know, as a next step when people come back, I, I don't like to use the phrase workplace of the future to right. me. There's probably no more overused phrase than that. But just but just be in the moment. You know, when people come back to the workplace, what is it going you know, back to my comment earlier about comfort? What is it going to take for people to be comfortable coming back? But what is the purpose of the workplace going to be? I remember years ago and when I say years ago, more years than I would care to admit I remember speaking on a panel for uh, IFMA, and I was speaking with the head of innovation or strategy or something, some very cerebral thing yeah. at Steelcase. Okay. And I remember the, the I remember the big question he threw out there to the group that you know got a lot of you know oh my gods from the audience was, and the question was, well, why do we even need a workplace? You know, and back when this happened in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, that was, you know, that was sacrilege. Right, right. But I, right. I thought back to that day many, many times during COVID. When I look at what our team and our, our global strategy and design teams and partnership 
and putting together the concept of propeller um, looked at is what are people coming back to do? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that you can't do from home or that you can't do as well from home? So it's not necessarily about enticing people back, although there was a component to that, but it's if they're going to come back, what's, what do they need to do when they're there? And it's probably different than what they did before. So, you know, if you look at some of the old models and they, you'll look at if you have kind of the concept of neighborhood planning and, well, this is where you do heads down work sure. and this is where you do this and we do that. The difference is, well, the heads down work, maybe people don't ever do that in the office any longer. Right. You know, unless right. it's in between times they're doing other things that for which they have to go to the office. Right. That's an example. Right. So. Yeah, if it's that, then you do need to provide a, a place for them to do it, but it may look very different. Yeah, and you know, some I've been in some dialogues where people have said, "Well, this the off is is the return to office workplace effectively, you know, one giant Starbucks." <laughs> and there's a whole. You know, I've been in conversations depends where depends on the coffee, the, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it's to, you know, you're going in to do what? You're going in to collaborate in a way that you can't collaborate using technology. Right. And for different companies, right. you know, some might say we can do everything just as well using tech. I'm not sure I would take a position on that. I think it depends on the company and the culture like anything else. Uh, I've never been someone, Vlad, who thinks everything is black or white. Everything is really some shade of gray. Sure. Uh, and sure. it really depends on on timing. It depends on budget. It depends on prioritization. depends on culture. So there are really a number of, of factors at play. And the idea of a propeller and how you kind of circle through, how you propel through the space, um, how you use the space, what is meeting space, what is collaboration space, uh, what is community space? You know, do people come back primarily for learning and collaboration um, or do they come back for other things? Yeah. You know, again, not black or white. There are always going to be businesses, industries, departments departments, job functions that have a physical requirement. Yeah. Uh, you know, yep. my daughter worked for an investment bank and she worked in their private wealth management group. They had to physically process checks that came in from their investors. That's probably kind of fairly, you know, rote kind of work, yep. but couldn't really be done other than in a physical location. Yep. So there are always going to be things like that. And then the office needs to provide for that. Yeah. And what sort of strikes me about all of that is that, you know, I haven't worked as long as you have, but I've, you know, been around sort of work for the last, you know, 20, 25 years. And one of the things that I've also noticed is, you know, the way I worked back when I first got out of college to the way that we work today is just vastly different, right? I mean, you used to go to the office, right? You used to perform all your functions at the office. Everything you needed to perform those functions was at the office also, right? I mean... The phone, the computer, right? All of that kind of stuff. Not a lot of people had all this, you know, computing capacity in their in their houses, right? And and right. now it's very different. But it also strikes me that I don't think going, you know, going into the future, looking even two months from now, twenty months from now, or you know, twenty years from now, that people are going to, you know, drive to the office to go check email or dr- go exactly. to the office to make the phone call, right? Or even have some meetings, right? I don't. I don't think that is going to happen anymore. But I also agree with you. Certain certain roles, certain jobs, right? Certain functions, um, you know. And you mentioned your daughter, but I can also see, you know, attorneys, right? Having to, you know, yep. deal with certain things 
they need to be in the sort of you know presence of of, of some of these these things in order to perform their uh, you know work. So you know, curious about all of that. You know, what what are some of the things that you know you guys are then getting your clients like? What are they asking you about? Is it tactical stuff? Sure. Or is it like you know strategic stuff at this point? You know, they're like, okay, we get the tactical stuff. We're going to leave the office as it is for now. We will tweak some things. But I really need to think about five years from now where we're going to be. Do you have a lot of those conversations or is it more just like, how do I fix this thing to go to the next level? Sure. Right. So before we get to that question, I want to touch back to something you said in your last piece. You started to talk about how different things are in the workplace now versus when you got out of college. Yeah. I'm going to actually take that a step in the opposite direction. I could make an argument in the workplace now is more like when you were in college. If you think about the way a college student and it uses a campus, much the way people have used some of the more progressive corporate campuses. Right, right. You know, if you think about it, you go to a classroom. Okay, that's that's akin to going to, you know, an office. But you then maybe meet with your study group. Do you do that in the library, conference room equivalent? Right. Or do you right. do that at the student union or the Starbucks on campus or do you just sit around under a tree and 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 discuss, you know, Plato or whatever it is you're studying? <laughs> right. But if you think about it in a college environment, you choose the venue based on what you're going to do. You know, I was an architecture student. There were certain things I had to do in the architecture building. I needed to be there in studio. But when I was doing my architectural history work, I would do that in the library. When right. I was doing my art history work, I might be in the museum. You know, other times I'd be in my dorm. So it's it's what do you need to do that? And you apply that, that lifestyle, you know, and if, remember, you know, the people looking at the generations of work a few years ago, the college example was, was really the, the most live example for that generation, which is they're not used to going to an office. They're not used to working in a home office. They're used to going to what makes sense for what they're doing at that point in time. If you look at the Capital One cafes that are being built out there yeah. now, you know, those are people's drop-in offices. You know, how much of that has been more acute because of COVID versus how much of it is just because that's the way people like to work now? You know, if you think about even before COVID, at least where I go, you know, it's almost, it's it's usually very difficult to find a table to open up your laptop in at a Starbucks. Yeah. And that was well before COVID. So I think it's just, it's a very different approach and it's, People will do what they need to do and go where they need to go to be successful at what they need to do. Yeah. And also people's attitudes, you know, the employer's attitudes have changed and have allowed for that flexibility to exist, right? 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that flexibility wasn't there in the office, right? Maybe certain studios or maybe some, you know, really kind of innovative kind of places. But for the most part, right, that flexibility was not there. I would much rather be coming out of college now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, again, not to not to go too deep into personal yeah. here, yeah, but yeah. you know, when I look back at, I, I've often said that you know, the it's interesting to think about how the most you know advanced corporate office space looks an awful lot like the most basic architecture firm right. that I would have worked at out of college. Right. Just a bunch of benches and right. a bunch of people sitting x number of feet away from one another, you know, with in front of a desk and. We didn't have phones on our desks back then because you were just there cranking workout. Right. You didn't have to call right. anyone. Right. So how different is it than what some spaces look like now? Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to my question. You know, what kind of 
work are companies asking you guys to help them figure out? So it really, it, it really runs the gamut, Vlad. You know, we have a number of clients, some of our enterprise clients in particular, but not exclusively, are asking us to really help them design either their future workplace, um, their future workplace standard, or their just return to office approach. So we've started to work with a major, major global tech company on their return to office. But and I think this is going to be typical of probably many of the things we'll discuss. It's also all over the map. You know, yeah. one day they came to us and said, OK, we want to get our all of our office space back to their original design capacity, as opposed to how we have dense packed them over time as we've grown. A month later, when we group with them, it was, we're just going to get people back as quickly as we can and just move some furniture around. Yeah, and yeah. then a month after that, they delayed their return to office because of some of the, you know, COVID challenges that have reared their ugly heads yeah, in the last yeah. month. So I imagine the conversation we, we have with them four weeks from now will look even different from that. So I think that bit of a roller coaster ride is not atypical. I think that I probably am seeing more consistency within industries because people are looking at their peer groups and then bigger differences between industries. So our life sciences client, our life sciences clients are very focused on having us work with them on what their future workplace might look like and some, and developing standards, et cetera. Um, Our tech clients are, eager to get people back from a collaboration perspective. So they want to get people back, but and they're the ones that are probably most sensitive to what's happening with COVID. I think yeah. you probably read, you know, Apple's changed some of their direction. Google's changed some of their direction. Yeah. Facebook yeah. has changed some of their direction. So that whole sector are looking at one another pretty carefully. Um, financial services seem very eager to get people back. If you read some of the stuff that Jamie Dimon has published or has quoted, um, or he's been quoted, I should say, yeah, yeah, and some of the other financial institutions, and again, referencing my daughter's experience as well, um, which one of the other major investment banks in New York City, you know, they have good reason to want people back. And I think they want to obviously do it in a, a healthy and safe way, needless to say, but they want to, they want to get people back. So I think I'm I'm personally seeing more sector by sector. We've done two or three medium to large projects for one of the major New York banks recently, um, where they just need to get a bunch of people in and back quickly. So I think that's um that's sort of what I'm seeing. Interesting, interesting. Are you working with companies that don't want to go back to the office at all? That are kind of going in totally the other direction, and they're looking to sort of you to help them design processes around that. I would say we're not. I mean, I'm going to be, you know, it's very direct in that, you know, our business is we're in the business of space sure. and and constructing space. So, you know, our teams are probably more focused on those clients. Um, but I think what we are doing is, you know, sort of back to the concept of propeller and playground is to talk to those kinds of clients about what the real estate is there for and for yeah. it to be productive as yeah. opposed to what they might have assumed it was there for. Michael, if we turn the tables around a little bit and sort of, you know, put you in the client seat, you know, how is your company dealing with some of those, you know, comforts of, uh, you know, getting folks back? I mean, you said you were open essentially nonstop, but I'm sure some people didn't come into the office as frequently or came to the office at all for a little while, right? It was a very small percentage. I don't want to suggest that we had 
50, 80 percent of the office in at any given time. We absolutely did not. But right, the office right. was open for right. those that needed or wanted to be there. Yeah. And and that's and that's why I'm asking. So what, what did you guys do internally to kind of, you know, raise that comfort level and sort of ensure, you know, on your end, you know, to bring people back and kind of make make them as comfortable as possible that that, that is going to be good and safe? There was no secret sauce here. You know, it's the it's the stuff that everybody's doing, which is, you know, and, and obviously this tapered up and down based on what the requirements were, you know, and, and where the feeling was with COVID. But, you know, we had distancing. We did a higher degree of cleaning. We had masking policies. Sure. We had, um, you know, we changed out our snacks and beverages and things to things that were much more individual versus communal. Right, right. We limited the number of people that could be in given rooms. Most of our offices were fairly open plan, so it was easy to just block off workstations and things of that nature. Of nature. We did contact tracing. We had signups, and people had to sign off on disclosures when they came in and out of the office. So it was really nothing that others weren't doing. There was no nothing magical there. Yeah. Um, we obviously put a lot of things in place for our people working on construction sites. Um, so we had testing and we had temperature checks and all sorts of things that we automated and logged and apped and all yep. sorts of things yep. so that our customers yep. would be comfortable as our teams were on site. So, you know, employee health and safety as a construction company is, is paramount. Yeah, 100%, um, yeah. And so we took all that quite seriously and really applied some of those protocols, which we had designed for the construction site to our office and studio environments as well. Makes sense. Makes sense. So let's switch the conversation a little bit towards, you know, your goals and what you're doing with uh, your company in the next, you know, 18, 24, 36 months. You know, where where is your focus uh, now going to be going into, you know, the second half of uh, 2021 and into 2022? So we've had a very strong 2021. I'm very excited about where we're going. You know, as you know, we were uh, the ownership of our company changed earlier this year. So the founders moved out of the building business, yep. and we are 100% owned by uh, the private equity firm PAG, and they have been outstanding owners and partners. Our CEO and I kind of came into the org, you know, as part of that process. So um, although we were not put in after they came, were brought in board, um, we all kind of came in together. So it was it was the kind of the leadership group. Yeah. Yeah. And they're excited about growth. They see huge opportunity for our model and our methodology in the market. You know, it is a disruptive approach, you know, using disruptive and positive connotation. Yeah. yeah. And it's the level of understanding and acceptance or acceptance of engagement of our model, you know, varies by region, uh, varies by product type, uh, varies by a number of things. And they see the opportunity. You know, if you think about when I think, Vlad, back to, you know, 20 some years of business development and corporate outsourcing. And again, most of those years were one of the two big real estate companies. And I like to think I had some very strong personal connections with many of my clients and prospects. You know, the typical question they would ask me was, hey, Michael, great, you know, wonderful, but you guys all sound the same. What's different about? <laughs> all right. And candidly, that was the absolute right and fair question for them to ask. But here is something... And then the, the the second line to that was, you know, every industry has changed with technology and with this or that, but the way we do real estate and manage facilities hasn't changed materially in X number of years. Um, I would challenge that a little bit, but that's probably subject for another podcast. 
but in our case, the way people built projects, and if you look at look at what we do, so let's compare the traditional model to what Unispace does. So in a typical model or traditional model, you might hire architecture firm A to do your workplace strategy. Yeah. Then you may decide to hire architecture firm B to design the actual space when you're ready to take over some space or renovate some space. Then you would hire, and they would do the design, they would do the construction drawings. Then you might hire an owner's rep to manage the process from that point on. That could be an independent contractor. That could be one of the big three. That could be someone in the middle. Sure. Then you hire a construction company to build it out. And then you might hire another design or consultancy to do change management. So if you think about that simple process or what's no longer a simple process to go from what is our workplace strategy to we need to have people working in an office, you've just identified five, six, seven, I'd have lost count, different partners that have to be involved in that project process. And at every process, there's a handover and every handover, there's a delay and an overlap and a transition. Yeah. So how is who would sit and design a process like that? Now, granted, everything has a pro and a con. So I'm not to say it, say that's you know, it's the ultimate answer, but it is an effective solution for increased speed to market, reduced or competitive costs. And what, what I'm finding some of our clients see in it is that it's a greater consistency in execution. You know, I was talking to someone who has a high level of importance placed on sustainability. So if you were the one designing and making the decisions on materials, with layout, what have you, um, to meet certain sustainability goals, yep. if you were then the one who are being held accountable for executing it, the likelihood of getting exactly what you set out to do is higher than if you're passing it on to someone else. So you could apply that to any number of things, Vlad, and that control through one team and a team that has everybody up front working together. So, you know, we don't have change orders. We don't have anything like that that you would typically see in a construction process because our construction team is at the table with our architects yep. Yep. Uh, and our designers. So they're identifying those problems really early on. Value engineering is just is not a phrase we have in our in our vocabulary because we're designing to a budget early on. And we're identifying to the client before it's designed whether or not they're going to be able to afford it based on the data they've given us on their budget, et cetera. So it's a different process. And people and our clients, you know, see that. Yep. Um, we have yep. a, a huge number of return um, clients and clients for whom we do multiple projects. I think that that speaks to it. So back to the PAG component, they see this as being a growth opportunity for them and for us and for the market. Um, and they're excited about that. They're very supportive of our growth. They want to see us um, grow both organically and through acquisition. Um, so we are adding companies into the mix, some which will become wholly owned, some of which will be co-branded. But we're bringing you know some new offerings to some clients, and then we are filling out some geographic um, opportunistic gaps. As our kind of final couple of questions here, Michael, you know, as you as you look at you know times of challenge or often times of opportunity, you've identified sort of you know how you guys have a different approach to you know servicing the clients and and the industry. 
Are there other things that you've identified during this time where you're saying, wow, that really, now that the world is the way it is, here's what we can also do? We're looking at aspects of, and it sort of touches on some of the things I've talked about before, but what we're, but how it's sort of manifesting itself in terms of our growth strategy is we are looking more at the employee experience. And whether you can look at that as the positive version of do people feel safe enough to come back? I'm looking at it more as a positive in terms of how does the space, how does the space strategy, how does the overall feel, you know, contribute to the employee experience? And we are bringing some things, solutions and teams into the mix that really focus on that. So if you think about some of the people that I've hired recently um, who come from user innovation and experience background um, and some of the other things that you'll be seeing from us in the coming months, you know, we're really looking at that aspect of the design where it's not just about how many people did we fit in and yeah. how many yeah. people could fit in there on XYZ day, but rather what is that overall experience for the employee? Because, you know, recruitment and retention is not going to be get any better. Sure. Um, we've all seen the employment statistics. I've had a personal theory from the beginning of all this, which is it's already difficult enough to recruit and retain top talent. How much more difficult is it going to be in a in an entire or else majority work from home environment? Yeah. Is it that much easier for the employee to feel distant enough from his or her team that they take that call from a recruiter they might not have taken? Or do they really feel the bond to their corporation, their team, their boss, et cetera, when their only connection through them or their limited connection through them is through Teams or Zoom. So to me, that's a big red flag that I don't hear enough people chatting about. So what we're looking for from our end is how can we help our clients in that regard through the way their employees experience their space? Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And I agree. I think that's that's part of that earlier discussion that we had about, you know, what does what do you do at work? How does that look like, right? That's what right. it looked like 20, 25 years ago and what is that going to look like in the future given all the tools and technology and things that we have at our disposal today, right? That that didn't exist, you know, back back in the day. So interesting, very interesting. Michael, you've been around the industry long enough to sort of, you know, see trends kind of pop up and see things that are that are coming down the line maybe better than than most most people are there some things that are emerging out there do you think and i know this is sort of a very kind of overused question but you know trends in the industry <laughs> that you would like to highlight so it's a tough question because it is talked about a lot you know i think that while we're all wanting to be innovative and we're you know, we're all ultimately talking about places where people work and how do they work and what do they do and what is their reason for going in? And I think we've covered a lot of it already. But so I, I don't have a I don't have a silver bullet there, Vlad. Um, I think that I think ultimately it's still it's about people. It's not about space. We can't lose sight of that now or in the future. Yes, it's about technology. Yes, it's about the physical space. Yes, at some level, it's about the amenities that are offered and the benefits people have. But ultimately, people are people, and they work together, and they interact at a at a level where I think the design community and the corporate real estate community really need to focus on what does it take to make that be the right experience that, again, I'm connected to a few of my other thoughts, that help people feel connected to their company, 
that have people feel a sense of ownership. When I was working at the hedge fund, um, one of their primary principles, of, of which there were many, was act like an owner. Okay. And I think that's a really important thing that we, but to have an employee act like an owner, they have to feel like they're an owner. And I think what we do to the space, what we do to support them, uh, what we do from, you know, one thing we haven't really touched on is what the space can do to support diversity, equity, and inclusion and have people feel comfortable and that they can be productive in the environment. So I think all of those things are, are part of that mix. Yeah, excellent. Well, Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. It's It's been a pleasure reconnecting oh, pleasure. again. Yeah, and uh, stay safe, and we'll be in touch with, you know, hopefully more news with what you guys are up to. We'll look forward to it, Vlad. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.